The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Police emergency. We'd like to report a problem. Britain's guardians of law and order aren't really doing their job. When all the chief constables had to commit publicly to sending an officer when a burglary is reported, something has gone badly wrong, hasn't it? When the country's biggest force, the Met, has its commissioner forced out over a series of scandals, including murder and rape by a serving officer, then brutally breaking up a women's protest over that incident, questions need to be asked. So is the thin blue line guilty of over overreaching its powers, prying into our lives during COVID, enjoying new powers to suppress protest and still institutionally racist when it comes to young black men. Or is it too busy being woke, taking the knee and monitoring online hate speech to actually police real crime? Today, we're stopping and searching the police. The one Curve. So you know what, I mean, there's a million and one questions, aren't there, about the police force? Like, are there enough police officers? Are they doing the right thing? Are they too woke? And this whole crazy idea, has to be a crazy idea, doesn't it? This idea that they have to investigate every burglary. Well, no, come on, every burglary is a crime. And yeah. I mean, you know, but there's loads of other crimes as well, there are which, loads are, of other which crimes. are worse. So yeah. do, they, do they say, well, we will investigate every burglary, but every assault we won't investigate? Or well, 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 you have every to, in theory, crime? in theory, you have to at least attempt to investigate every crime crime otherwise what's the law for if someone says well i burgled that house i know nothing's going to happen uh, then it be- then the system begins to break down doesn't it i mean that's that's mm. the issue and in fact famously of course there was this new york police commissioner back in the 80s who said if we investigate uh, graffiti and, and breaking of windows and crack down on that the rest of crime will come down and it did so why are police officers leaving the police force i guess that's one of the big questions isn't it so it's is it institutional are there institutional problems look i had a uh, my granddad was a police officer got a medal actually Went to see the Queen uh, because he got a medal for seeing the Queen. Yeah, yeah, one of those too. Yeah, because he uh, uh, helped a, a, a ship was on fire in the Liverpool docks. It was bombed in uh, Liverpool docks, and he went to help get the uh, get people off the, get people off the boat. So uh, yeah, so, but he was uh, you know he was a police officer from Dixon's of Do- Dixon of Dock Green days. Now that's really showing my yes, age and mine. Uh, well, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean they were, you were gentlemanly, but you were also yeah, tough. But, yeah, but you weren't. Were you? I mean, if we yeah. actually look at the records of what went on in those years. I mean, mm. the amount of corruption, the amount of petty brutality that went on. There is a racism that was going on yeah. in the force. I mean, you know, we have this sort of polished image, courtesy of the BBC, which <laughs> in the end didn't make any sense if oh, you actually look again. at the records. Yeah, yeah. So actually, yeah, I mean, are we just finding out more about what really goes on? But it is very difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, you have to be, I mean, to be a police officer, you have to be tough. You're not going to mm. sort out crime by going softly, softly. Yeah, but you are also with the consent of the people. That's the whole point of the police force in Britain. Mm. Now, it does distinguish it. And if that is the case, what are people consenting to? I mean, don't forget they stopped us sitting in parks during COVID. Now, you may say perfectly reasonable, but that's mm. a huge uh, advance on what we allow they the use police drones. to do to us. Yeah. In the Peak District to yes. track people going for a walk miles from anybody else. I mean, that meanwhile was... they stood outside the door of a rather famous address in London and didn't inquire at all as to what that was going on inside. Going on. So yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of problems there. Plus, you have, you know, very, within recent weeks the shooting dead of an unarmed black man in Streatham. The investigation is going on. We don't know what the reason was, mm. but immediately that sets up the whole thing of RR police still, in a way, not in the moment in terms um, of regarding the whole community as worthy of equal policing. Yeah, not the first time. Of I mean, there was that. Uh, was he Brazilian? The guy who was shot, yeah. uh, shot, shot in the back. Charles de Menezes. Yeah. So uh, he was. That was a mistaken identity. But even so, the mm. point is, we have the police on one hand, perhaps being running away and unarmed. Though I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, so there's a million 
come on questions about all of that of absolutely so pre- police brutality is part of it then there's the question about you know is enough done after somebody is arrested so if the police do their job are we, uh, you know, putting charging people and putting them into prison for long enough? Look at how you know the number of people. Well, the whole here. thing about sentencing and, and the effect thereof. So the police would difference? say maybe that's part of why they're leaving. They would say, well, you know, we're doing all the work and the sentences aren't uh, stacking <laughs> but, up to the work but that it we're is, doing. You can't measure it by, by prison sentence. And everything. The whole point of a good police force is that the simple presence of the police force and the confidence in the police force mm. means that you get less crime anyway. And that—that's the theory, at least. That the policing and the justice system, in that sense, are separate. But at the same time, you've also got the problem, I and mean, you alluded to it, of a sense of, are they too woke? Are they busy monitoring online hate and, mm. and trying to stop people saying things they think may be offensive? But is that really where the police should be? Should they be taking the knee? Should they be making public demonstrations of a particular outlook, a very good outlook, but it is a particular outlook. But the problem is politics gets involved in all of this because the logical thing to say would be, you know, well, we employ professional people. They make a judgment call on all of this sort of stuff. But then when they get influenced by uh, by politicians, by protest groups, uh, you know, they, they, all of a sudden they're, they're, they're responding to pressure, external pressure, rather than just getting on and doing the well, job the, themselves. The reason is that they are not, in that sense, centrally governed. They are, you know, you have police commissioners, at least around the country, theoretically keep their... Chief constables in line. It's a very long, complicated process. In the end, though, they exist outside the sphere of government for a reason, because we don't want to have a police state. But yeah. I mean, let's let's talk mm. about all this. Lots to talk about with Lots Dr. Rick to Muir, who is director of the Police Foundation and an independent policing think tank. He joins us now. So, Rick, I mean, I guess the first question is, is, is part of the problem that we're, we're facing with the, the police force is that there just aren't enough police officers. So I see that, you know, from 2019, uh, we had 20,000 fewer police officers than we had 10 years before that. And the population had grown by seven and a half percent. So actually, at that stage, if we wanted to go back to where we were in 2019, we'd need another 30,000 police officers and growing. I just wonder, are we ever going to make that up? And is that basically the the core problem that we are facing with, with police, that there just aren't enough of them? Well, numbers of officers is definitely a problem. Um, And um, you're right that the current government is recruiting an extra net 20,000. Although, I mean, they're actually recruiting a lot more than that because you get lots of people leaving naturally over the course of time. And so they're actually trying to recruit about 50,000 at the moment. So, I mean, it's a huge ask, actually, to recruit that number of people in a very short period of time. But um, even if they get up to the net 20, it's still... um, will only take us up to the levels in 2010. And even then, that doesn't include um, staff, um, support staff. Um, So um, people like PCSOs uh, and also, you know, analysts, um, people working in operational support functions, all of these things have been cut back by a lot. Um, So actually, um, it's going to be quite difficult to get back up to the levels we were at uh, in 2010. And are they, are they getting? How are they doing with that with that recruitment? Because the I'm looking at uh, in December 2020. They, they, yeah, that's when they basically said 20,000 extra police officers by March 2023. By December 2026 uh, uh, last year, I think there were 6,000 of those already in place. We've got another 6,000 by now. Uh, which means there'd still be 8,000 to go for that 20,000, but you're saying it actually needs to be 50,000. So these, it seems like wh- whichever numbers you look at, whatever the target they're aiming for, they are a long way behind. They're having difficulty getting those people, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it is, it is taking time and they are uh, struggling. And of course, the other, the other problem that they have is that uh, there's a lot of churn. Um, so inevitably, when you try to recruit at pace in the way they're doing now, um, 
they, they say they're not lowering standards, but, you know, actually they probably are a bit because they're chasing numbers. It's a kind of bums on seats exercise. Yeah. So, so Rick, I mean, when you've got this churn, I mean, that the, the implication of that is that people are leaving because they're not happy as much as anything. Um, and, and, and in a sense, I mean, no government comes in saying we want to cut the number of police officers, maybe behind the scenes they are doing that. But is a real big part of this the fact that police officers are unhappy and and why would they be unhappy they're well paid generally yeah it used to be a job for life didn't it yeah i mean it still pretty much is i mean people do tend to stay for the 30 years that they they come in for in policing but but there is there is more churn i mean the pension is less attractive than it used to be although it's still attractive if you compare it to similar professions uh, particularly non-graduate professions you know policing uh, you still don't need to have done a university degree to join the police uh, you get one while you're your part in the police, but you, you don't have to have one to join. And so for a non-graduate profession, it's still a very attractive profession in terms of its pension package, in terms of its career progression profile. You know, it has a very clear career structure. Um, the, the pay tends to be pretty uh, good compared to other um, uh, areas, although, you know, it has been frozen for a long time. And so comparatively, it sort of declined somewhat. Um, I think what we found recently is that there's there's a lot of talk of, of some of the new recruits joining and then finding that policing is not quite what they thought it would be. Um, and um, there's, uh, you know, and it, it there's a lot of anecdote about why that's happening, but, um, you know, people talk about, um, you know, people finding the shift work difficult with their family lives and, and things like this. Um, and, um, you know, it is, it, it's an unusual job. I mean, particularly, particularly the shift, particularly the shift work pattern. It's but is it also the role thing. itself? Is it also the sense of what you're there for, what you're supposed to do? And perhaps, I guess, um, perhaps coming up against public hostility as well. But And, and that is bizarre, isn't it? Using that as, as an excuse, talking about shift work, as if you went into the job thinking, well, all crime is largely committed nine to five. I mean, of course, there's shift work involved if you work for yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I mean, there are bits of it that are more nine to five, you know, detectives tend to have a more nine to five existence. But yeah, if you, most cops when they join will go on response policing, which is dealing with 999 calls and that kind of stuff. And that and that and that is shift work and you'll be asked to work nights at weekends, etc. Um, and yeah, I, I think it, it you know, it should it should be clear that that's what that's what's involved in the job. Um, but I think um, there is a number of reasons why people um, may be getting frustrated. I mean, there's um, there, there is some evidence that the job has become more emotionally um, draining and more challenging. And I think um, that's because the nature of the work has become. Uh, you know, I think police officers are exposed to quite a lot of trauma, the kind of nature of the work that they're doing now, the, the, the mix of crimes that they're, they're dealing with has shifted away from things like acquisitive crime, burglary, car theft, things like that, um, towards things more like sexual crime, violent crime, which are more, which are more emotionally taxing on people, you know, because... Is there more violent crime really than there used to be? I mean, no, I mean, there's, overall violent crime is down, but there's more serious violence. So in the last five, over the last 25 years, violent crimes fallen by something like seventy percent overall. Um, but if you look at um, the, if you look at things like homicides and knife crime, that has ticked up in the last five years. So 
Um, the one thing that has increased massively is sexual crime, not not the incidence of sexual crime, which is about the same as it was, but sexual crime reported to the police, because most sexual crime isn't reported to the police. Most of it takes place in domestic settings uh, between people who know each other. And a lot of it isn't the vast bulk of it. You know, I, I think 80 percent of rapes aren't reported to the police, for example. So. Um, but the number that are has increased. It's more than trebled in the last five years. And if you go into a lot of um, uh, specialist crime units now, you'll find that um, uh, you know, major crime units, they'll be dealing with, you know, a huge bulk of their workload will be dealing with sexual crime. And and that's, that's you know, it's very difficult. It's very, it's very different from investigating burglary, for example, or investigating car theft. And, and they've come under huge criticism, obviously, for the way they've dealt with that. I mean, we, there were obviously attitudes that we wouldn't recognise now uh, 20 years ago, maybe more recently than that. But again, that's something that I suppose changes the role of the police a bit what are they there to do how should they interact with with a woman who's been raped for example yeah i mean it requires a different skill set um and it requires um and i think it maybe requires a different uh sort of set of motivations really because you i I find a lot of people who join the police are quite um oriented by getting results and often that means making arrests and so if you um uh, and it's it's easier to arrest burglars and um uh and car thieves than it is to um uh successfully get convictions for things like rape i mean they i mean the 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 track record or track record on rape is is terrible i mean it's declined a lot in recent years it's it's uh, it's a kind of scandal really what's happened um to success rates in that area but but actually um, it does take longer to investigate those kind of crimes. Sexual crime, by its very nature, it just takes longer to put the, the ev- piecing together the evidence. It's just it's just a more complex process. So I think um, so. Some people don't um, uh, don't want to go into that. And we have found, for example, I mean, there's a massive shortage of detectives at the moment. And I think one of the reasons for it is that some people don't want to go into that side of policing um, because they're not attracted to the kind of mix of work and the uh, and, and the workloads that exist there. So. Um, yeah, so it's a, mm. it's a, it's a, it, there's a complex set of factors. I think there is, a, I think there is a real sense in policing. Um, you hear a lot of people in policing feeling that it's sort of slightly lost its way. Um, people questioning, you know, what's the job for? Um, I mean, there's always been a bit of cynicism within the, within policing. You know, I mean, it's, it's well, more than a bit. Yeah, I have no, a couple I mean, of friends who are police, and it, yeah. it it seems to be endemic. Yes, I think I think partly due to the nature of the work, I think there's a there's a certain amount of a um, it's there's a kind of you know there's a kind of tragic quality to the work you know you you generally can't police generally can't solve many of the problems that they're dealing with they're, they're picking up um, crises and problems that are out there in society that they're and they're really a sort of sticking plaster I mean they can't really stop these things from happening um, and often they see the same people cycling through and cycling through and it, and they don't really have any purchase on the things that might make a difference there they they can mm. they can um, use their powers. Um, make arrests, uh, investigate crime, but I mean, you know, there are limits to what they can do, and I think, yeah. I think that I mean, they yeah. understood that they're the sticking plaster, aren't they? Really, to the society's ill. So Andy Cook, who is a former chief constable of Merseyside Police, he said a few years ago, if he was given five billion pounds to reduce crime, he'd put a billion into law enforcement and four billion into into tackling poverty. And you know, it, it is it's the consequences of other problems, isn't it? Yeah, that the police I, are dealing he's, with. He's right. He's absolutely right. If you had the money, you would put it into. You know, I mean, a huge amount of police time there's estimates about 40 percent of police um time now is spent on dealing with mental health issues and 
you know, the, the mm. police themselves call themselves now the emergency service for mental health problems. And no, no one thinks it's satisfactory that the police should be doing that job because these are not people who are committing crimes. These are people who are, who are ill, who have health problems. And the reason they're getting into crisis is because the mental mental health community mental health services have been cut back and there isn't there aren't enough mental health beds in hospitals. And so the police end up dealing with all of that. And I think so um, I would invest a huge amount more in, in mental health provision um that i would in in policing you know i mean because policing is just inevitable policing is a downstream business not an upstream business it doesn't prevent problems from happening it's generally dealing with things when they've got out of hand um and that's why they find themselves but i think particularly after the austerity period and bearing in mind we're probably going into another austerity period now but through the last austerity period lots of cutbacks in other public services meant that um you know, the police were just dealing with lots of demands that arise out of things like, you know, street homelessness, um, people people in mental health crisis. Um, I think, you know, I've been out on patrol with cops where they'll tell you, um, I can't remember the last time I dealt with a crime, you know, <laughs> and then literally say yeah, that it's, to you. It's, because they're dealing so that would, and that would explain, wouldn't it, why people are leaving the force? Because it's not what they imagined they were they, they were going in for. They're solving uh, b- bigger problems or, ju- or just the, the sticking plaster for, for bigger problems. But it's not just that, is there? I wonder whether there's also cultural issues at the management level. So there were the Home Office a couple of years ago, they had a, uh, and they were concerned about, you know, what we'd been talking about, this, this retention of experienced police officers, uh, because it was rising. And at that stage, over over 1.8% were resigning voluntarily each year. I don't know whether, you know, on a global scale, how that benchmarks. But the research at the time seemed to suggest that the, the, the indicators that people were giving was poor leadership and management. That was the overwhelming factor. And linked to that, not being valued by that management as though, you know, a cultural issue rather than the other factors we've been talking about, actually the management within the police forces is what was making people leave. Now, it might be linked to those issues, but uh, but recognition seems to be, hey, you know, we, we, we've got a hard time here and nobody seems to recognise the work that we're doing. There's there's definitely issues around leadership. Um, and, and I think that because of austerity, they've had to be going through a lot of change programmes and that's an that leads to a lot of change in people's um, roles. Um, I think the workforce feel that they don't get very, they don't get consulted very much on that, so they um, they feel alienated from those processes. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot, there is a lot of dissatisfaction with that, um, and I think. Um, and I think also the, the police service doesn't invest enough in developing its leaders um, at all levels, not just senior levels, but right down to sergeants. You know, most of the workforce is managed by sergeants and they um, they receive very little by the way of continuous professional development and support in that. Certainly if you compare them to the to com- comparable roles in the military, for example. So, so I think there is a need to do a lot more to strengthen the development of leaders in policing, um, as I say, not just at the senior levels, but all the way through the organisation. Yeah, I mean, they've lost a lot of leaders recently in certain forces, the Met, I suppose, being one obvious example. Um, but but all this seems to me to come down to the issue of what policing is here, which is policing by consent. When it changes, when the consent of the public changes in different ways, they want different priorities. The police have to wrap themselves around that, whether it's at the senior level where they're trying to deal with police commissioners who are elected or even at the government level. Uh, and, and that issue of consent is a difficult one, isn't it? Because our public attitudes are hugely different than they used to be. Yeah, there's a challenge here about, uh, you know, the police can only do their job with the confidence and trust of the public. Um, and uh, if they're not sort of delivering the things that the public want, then public dissatisfaction does grow. Um, 
I think there's there's reasonably good evidence, though, that if you um, the th- things that do tend to improve public satisfaction with the police are. Um, you know, just being responsive to people, responding quickly um, to their concerns, um, d- uh, good communication, and importantly, good community policing, good neighbourhood policing, which is, you know, essentially Bobby's on the beat. And we've seen a loss of that over the last few years because, again, going back to austerity, um, one of the things that suffered was neighbourhood policing. They, they sort of, a lot of forces pulled out of that. So people weren't seeing their local Bobby's on the street and police essentially retreated to their to their cars and were just doing incident response all of the time and if you're doing that you know so you only ever see the police when you know something bad's happened rather than seeing them out on the beat more proactively but that's just pr isn't it? i mean the chances of the i mean if we had more police walking the streets would that reduce crime yeah. or is it would we just feel safer would it give us a, a false yeah, sense of feeling security safe is part of the issue isn't it I mean, yeah but you'd also want you know there to be some uh some some truth behind it as well is it are we you know because you might feel safe but you know behind the scenes crime is just getting worse because more police are walking the streets actually not really achieving well, a great i mean i think if they, if they were simply randomly walking about then that would be true but i think um most of the evidence is that if you if you target um uh officers in those roles um i mean for example there's a, there's a really good um uh, trial from western australia which shows that if you if you have a police patrol of a high crime area um want for 15 minutes every five days then crime drops dramatically <laughs> so that so and also all they have to do is walk about uh for 15 minutes <laughs> every five days in, in a high crime area and it has a big deterrent effect on crime and it's just simply because people are like oh the police are around here and you know maybe and it, it yeah. has a deterrent effect so- but 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 there is there is an obverse of that which which is that the high crime area in some cases will be areas uh, of particular communities let's put it in those terms where a heavy police presence is resented uh, what i'm talking about here is a perception of racism still in the police, that this is what they put their effort into, whether it's stopping and searching young black men or even shooting them in a recent instance. Um, that is a, is something that's really hanging around the neck of the police here in this country, particularly the Met, institutionally racist, as it was described famously. And that is if you if you put lots of resources into that, you know, you go back to the sus laws of the of the of the 80s, the stop and search and all this. It does seem oppressive to one section of the community. And that's a big problem, yeah, it isn't is it? Problem. And, um, and I don't think good neighborhood policing means, uh, you know, institutionally racist policing. I think these are two separate things. I mean, I think you can you can do good quality patrols, community engagement. That's one thing. Um, the use of the industrial use of stop and search um, is quite another thing. And that. That's um, and that's something which I strongly oppose. I think that um, there's plenty of evidence that stop and search is, um, uh, particularly when it's used without um, reasonable suspicion, which is the use of the Section 60 power, where they don't they can search people without suspicion that someone's carrying um, an illegal item. the use of that is is counterproductive. Basically, they hardly ever find anything on anybody, and it, it, well, it cuts knife crime. Some some community leaders say it cuts knife. The crime. evidence on that is very weak. Um, it, there's no real evidence from that. I think in, within use of Section 60 searches, only about I think it's less than one percent result result in a find of, of of a weapon. So that 
that's less than one in a hundred. So you have to search a hundred people um, in order to find. Anything. But if you place um, more more police on the streets in the, in these areas where knife crime is rife, I mean, you are. Uh, I mean, this is not a reason for not having police there, but you, you're putting their lives in danger as well. So I mean, we have seen, haven't we, an increase in the number of attacks on on police over over recent years. I'm looking at figures, for example, in the in the northeast of England, in Middlesbrough, where it seems to be particularly rife. So I mean, that's that's a danger, isn't it? For for and probably another reason why people are, are getting out. It's just it's just too dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it can be a very dangerous job, and I think um, and you know, there's police officers up and down the country are doing very brave and courageous things every. Day. So, I mean, uh, and they need support in that and they need to be properly protected. And, and that's absolutely clear. I think the big reason, um, I mean, it, it's hard to know why assaults on police officers are going up. But I think um, I think I think there may be something to do with, as I was saying before, the um, uh, the austerity issues and the rise of social crisis and the fact there's just more people with drug and alcohol problems and that kind of thing, because that's the kind of thing that tends to lead to um, confrontation. Um, and so so I think it's about, I think it's probably about that, um, that that's sort of driving that. Um, and actually the solution to that is to deal with the fundamental problems behind it. Um, but obviously the police should mm. be, should be um, should be properly protected. Well, and, and it's a question about where you draw the line, isn't it? So my gr- uh, my granddad was a, a police officer uh, in Liverpool. We, uh, we heard that. But I know from the tales he told, I, I mean, he wasn't afraid to use his truncheon. Let's put it that way. You know, I think he got into when he saw trouble, he went in there and, and fought basically and and i don't know whether that is a good way of policing he seemed to think it did because he seems to think it well, resolved it was policing a great deal for of a certain issues. era wasn't it that's yeah. the point. we are in a different we, era right but i mean could that work today and and you know if it worked did it work in those Phil days Dolly suggests aggressive policing <laughs> well no but i mean that, that where do you draw the line between aggressive policing and being too standoffish and uh, and not fighting well, crime think, effectively there's a there's there's a need the police obviously have to be um you know firm when they need to be firm and to enforce when they need to enforce but the key thing about policing by consent is that its enforcement shouldn't come first, enforcement should come last. And you should only use enforcement as a last resort. And that's been tried and, te- tried and tested. And if you look across the world, all the experiences that if you, if you get um, aggressive forms of policing um, tend to lead to a drop in community confidence, a drop in community trust. Um, and then it, and it's harder for the police to do their job. So it's well, it's much more effective to do uh, to do policing by consent, which is to work with communities rather than just you know see, coming in to enforce the law. On that issue of consent, Rick, I mean, one interesting thing that happened during the COVID period was police suddenly had hugely increased powers. Uh, and there's lots of questions about the accountability of those powers and the way they were used. I mean, you know, literally stopping people from sitting in a park, investigating people's houses, see if they were having a party or a gathering of more than two or three people. I mean, vastly increased. And it has to be said, spottily uh, enforced or, or even randomly enforced in certain cases. And there was a lot of disquiet, I know, again, from people who are in the force about the extent of those powers that they had and how they were supposed to use them. And and an awful fear that this had changed the nature of policing in this country, potentially. What do you read into that? Yeah, I mean, there was a real risk during the pandemic that the police would be dragged into, you know, sort of really excessive forms of policing of the coronavirus rules. I mean, actually, I think the way they dealt with it was broadly in the right way, um, which is that they took a... 
as I say, an enforcement last approach. So they they took an approach of um, seeking to persuade people to comply with the rules, and they would only use enforcement if people you know simply refused to comply with the request. Um, now that's very different to, for example. Um, the approach that was taken in uh, in other parts of Europe. So, I mean, if you compare in the first lockdown, um, English and Welsh police issued 17,000 fines, whereas in France, it was something like half a million. Um, in Spain, it was something like half a million. In, in Italy, I think it was about 600,000, something like that. So completely different form of policing. And of course, in those countries, you had to go out with a piece of paper. There were police roadblocks. If you didn't if you didn't have a reasonable reason on your piece of paper while you were out and about, um, you'd be told to go home. Uh, it's a very, but I mean, they come from, they have a very different policing tradition, which is more of a militaristic p- form of policing. Our, our form of policing, which Peel created in the 19th century, was always about policing by consent. It wasn't supposed to be militaristic. It was supposed to be, you. these are ordinary members of the public who happen to be wearing a uniform um, and um, they're part of the community and um, and that they police by voluntary compliance first and only as a last resort use enforcement. And so that's interested- the way they dealt with the pandemic. Right. So I'm interested in that, that use of, you know, that, that uh, by consent, because obviously you, you're not going to get consent from the criminals. And, and that's who, who, you know, who you are really uh, combating uh, in, in the role of a of police officer. I'm not quite sure how that 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 area of consent works. Well, I mean, you never literally get consent in the sense that we don't all sort of get to say whether we want to be policed or not. Um, you know, they they are the, the state. Uh, in you know, they they are um, part of the state, and and we don't get any choice about that. But it reminds um, me of that that Robin Williams sketch, that American the American comedian Robin Williams, who was uh, talking about how you know in they don't have guns with the UK police force; they've only got truncheons. So all they can do is they can go, I say stop or. I'll say stop again. That is true in the sense that overall society accepts the existence of a police force and what it does. I mean, that's what consent means, isn't it, Rick, really? Yeah, yeah I think it's, yeah, it's about basic level of compliance. So it's about what it means is that people, by and large, obey the rules voluntarily and they don't have to be forced into it. Um, because if, if they weren't voluntarily complying with the rules, there's no way in which 135,000 people... Um, uh, are going to be able to force everyone to comply. It's just not possible, you know. So the reason, so policing only works based on um, community compliance with the rules by and large. And then policing can focus on the small number of people, relatively small number of people who, who do break the rules. And um, and that's that's where the policing comes in. But there's no way, but society has to police itself mainly. Um, and then the police come in when things when things get out of hand or break down. And that's that's how it has to work. So we talked about how there might be some cultural issues at the management level because, because management is not being nurtured enough. There's not enough training. And you gave the example of, you know, unlike what's done in the military. And a question I meant to ask at the time, uh, but maybe the optics are really bad on this, you know, is the answer in that case that there needs to be a few military people drawn into the into the police force who've had that training? Or is it just such a completely different realm, such a completely different sphere that that would be harmful? Certainly the police wouldn't, the, the public wouldn't like it very much. Uh, uh, but, you know, maybe this current government... I, I think, think Phil wants paramilitary police. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I'm not... truncheon in Liverpool <laughs> or having generals in charge. But, Rick, I mean, that's not the way we do it, is it? No, it's not. And we've always had, although, 
I mean, there's always been a lot of people from the military that have gone into policing. I mean, if you look at in the 19th century, most of the chief constables were people who came from the military. That was their background. And if you look at police now, you still get quite a lot of ex-military people joining the police um, because, you know, it's a uniform profession, uh, that kind of this. There's, there are similarities. Um, but um, I think the, the big thing that we could learn from the military um, is that the military spend a lot more time training their people than the police do. And in some ways, that's because it's a different kind of work. It's, you know, the, the military spend a, a, lot, a lot less time in theatre and they spend more time sort of, you know, in barracks or whatever. And but they, they deal with less scenarios, don't they? Yeah, I mean, they, they deal with less scenarios where the, the police have got this sort of constant 24-hour stuff mm. to deal with and they have, so they have less time. Mm. Um, but I do think we need to spend more time training um, and supporting police with that they're learning than we do at the moment. And that's because that's a big problem. If you talk to police officers, they're very dissatisfied with the quality of the training they get. They don't yeah. think they're, well, they, they, they the, don't think that they're being given the right training for the job that they're, they're asked to do. The reason I ask that question is not because I think, you know, we should introduce martial law at the first opportunity. He, he does, and, really. He I mean, does it, really. It needs to be heavily enforced. I'm far from it. But, I'm, you know, my politics are very different to this. But, you know, the, this current government seems to have it in their mind that uh, the, the, the police are becoming too woke, you know, and a lot of right wing commentators are going down that same road as well. So something has to it, yeah, something I mean, has to change to show, well, we're, t- we're tackling that. And then you have these crazy situations like, well, there was a job advertised at West Midlands, West Midlands Police a year or so back for the the assistant director, fairness and belonging, paying seventy five thousand. And there's been all these sorts of jobs. I'm not really quite sure uh, what a, a director of yeah. fairness and belonging would do. And all you've day, got the new it's... commissioner of the Met coming in and saying, my, 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 "My officers will not be taking the knee." I mean, he literally said that as one of his big things uh, as, as he came into the job. So there is clearly a backlash against something that is perceived as woke. But I mean, Rick, are the police guilty of going too far overboard? You know, policing online, hate speech, that kind of stuff. Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think this woke thing is is a myth, really. I, I don't think there's. Um, um, I think there are, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that's been called out. You know, so there's the video of, of police officers and indeed the police and crime commissioner in Sussex sort of dancing at the at the Pride uh, March in Brighton. I mean, um, at the end of the day, the police um, are always going to have a, a presence at um, at events like that because they're there to um, help yeah. support them. And that's community police policing, isn't it? And it's good traditional community policing. Yeah. And uh, personally, I don't see anything wrong with that. And, yeah. and, uh, and of course, you've got to bear in mind that the gay community in particular, LGBT community, traditionally has had less trust in the police than a lot of other parts of the community because, of course, they were heavily policed, you know, very heavily policed um, uh, in the particular... In, in the post-war period. Um, well, again, police the, enforcing societies mores of the time. It wasn't the police. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, so no, much exactly. they were, society. They were, enforced, they were enforcing... A, a, an immoral set of laws, but they were. They, but um, but it, it meant that there was a. You know that there's a job of work to do for the police to rebuild relationships with the LGBT community, and and I think that you know that's part of them doing that. And I, I can't see the, uh, the problem with them doing that. You know, Notting Hill Carnival, for example, we don't want the police walking around Notting Hill Carnival with um, you know guns and um, you know riot gear. Or but do we want them taking the knee? Which, as the police commissioner, in, incoming Met commissioner said is taking a position right or wrong well he's just saying he's just just saying that for politics he was saying saying it's not the police's role to take a political position whether or not it's a good or bad position 
I personally don't. I, 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 I don't agree with the commission on that. I think that actually um, I, I would I want the biggest problem in terms of trust and confidence that the police have at the moment is with the black community. Mm. If you look at all the poll, you know, black, black people um, trust the police less by about 20 percentage points less than, than white people or Asian people. So. Um, so there's just a, a and it's a long-standing legacy of of institutionally racist policing going back you know decades, mm-hmm. and and I think um, and you know so um, I have no issue at all with police officers trying to reach over that divide and demonstrate that they're committed to equality and inclusion and, and but all they also that. have now, a big course, problem with women at the moment, both Sarah Everard, of course, and the breakup of the yeah they do. I mean, the, uh, so all, all of that needs to be sorted out by by the people at the top, don't they? Which is why it's a bit sad that the you know the head of the the Met would be would be saying that that's a political position. The idea that we want equality for for black people would be a political position. No, it's 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 an obvious thing that society wants. But I do wonder about when you have things like that job I mentioned, this uh, director for fairness and belonging. That is a job for the chief constable to make sure that's happening. I'm not really, I'm not quite sure what the person in that job would be doing all day. Well, I mean, to be honest, I don't I don't know either. But I mean, I think. I, I, I can't really comment on that, but I think that I think that um, the, the great myth out there, and this is the myth, right? So let's be clear about the, what the myth is. The myth is that the police are not attending burglaries because they're dancing at carnivals, right? Mm. That's that's what people are implying, and that's yeah. nonsense. That's absolute yeah. nonsense. Of course it is, but should, but they, the, 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 the response doing... to that, the response to that from the government is, well, now we think that every invest every burglary should be investigated. I mean, how realistic? Well, and indeed, the chief constable saying they will. And how realistic is that? The reason they're not attending, the reason they have been attending burglaries is because they haven't they've got fewer police officers mm. and because because we've had a trebling of reported sexual offenses so that they're instead of dealing with burglaries they're dealing with um sexual offenses they're dealing with mental health crisis they're dealing with all these things it's got nothing to do with being woke absolutely nothing to do with that so mm. um so let's be clear about what the problem is i agree they should be attending burglaries but they do need the resources to do that you know i mean because if they're if they're doing it within the existing budget they're going to be not doing something else and it's not that they're not going to be at um, you know, pride marches or Nottingham Carnival, it's that they're going to be um, it's that they're, they're not going to be dealing with sexual crime or they're not going to be dealing with, they're not going to be attending a mental health incident as quickly as they could do. That's what, that's where the real issue is here. It's a choice between very difficult priorities. So I think the police do need more resources because I think they, um, I, I think it's right that they should attend burglaries because it's a very invasive form of crime. And the fact that they haven't been doing so, I think has caused a lot of public disquiet. And um, uh, so I think, I think it's important, you know, it's important that they, they they take on some quick wins. I think the public get very frustrated when they, you know, people now have these find my phone things. And when their phone gets nicked, the public can see where the person is. And then they phone the police and say, this person's just nicked my phone. I can just, I know where the phone is. Or you can do it with your laptop as well. And then the police do nothing about it because they're like, well, it's, a, it's an acquisitive crime. We can't deal with acquisitive crime. So we just leave it. I think the police should be jumping on those opportunities to demonstrate to the public that they're, able to get results for them. So so I think there has been a, a loss of focus on some of those things, but they do need the resources to, to do the job. So what about uh, frontline police versus back office staff? You you mentioned earlier that, you know, there are, there are people doing, uh, the, you know, the backroom jobs as well as the, the people that we see. Have we got that ratio right? I have to say, I looked at it's I, I looked at, you know, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. We're sort of, you know, the Met's pretty comparable, actually, with, the, yeah, with those I mean, cities. The, the one place where we could save a lot of money in policing and direct that money into, you know, the front line is... Um, uh, is the current 43 force structure. And that means that what you have is 
43 HR departments, 43 finance departments, 43 uh, firearms units, 43... So it's a one national police force? No, I don't think you need to go for a national police force, but you you could pool a lot of the specialist capabilities and the support functions could operate across a whole region rather than 43 different times. And if you look at what they did in Police Scotland, they, they did merge their eight forces into one. And they saved twice as much money as they thought they would. And they improved the quality of the services they're providing. So I think we need to look at um, we need to look at those. Uh, you know, why are we doing everything 43 times? You don't need to have one national police service. But I think you could have regional units that do a lot of the specialist stuff, homicide, firearms, right. all that kind of stuff. So that's one. The other one you said is things that are easy to solve, which would be good for, from a PR point of view, uh, if you can pounce on them quickly, like the find my, you know, following up on the find my phone cases. Uh, what else should we do? Because I mean, almost certainly those other areas, the contributing uh, causes, like uh, lack of funding on, on mental health, for example, that is almost certainly not going to go away in the next five years. If anything, it's going to get worse. So do we just put more police officers trying to be the, uh, the, the the sticking plaster on all of society's ills? Or is there, is there something, if you could ask the government to do anything, would you be like the uh, like the, the mayor, the, the uh, chief constable in Liverpool and say, yep, actually put more money into these areas. Don't yeah, give no, it to the police. I, yeah, I would actually. I would say spend it on other public services first. And, and because those are the things... The, the things that the police are dealing with are the consequences of social failure. I mean, and unless you tackle that, the p- policing just, you know, you know, goes around in circles, really. And, you know, and they get frustrated with it because they see the same people coming through all the time and nothing's solved, you know, and and they can't solve it. They're not social workers. They're not they're not doctors. They're not nurses. Um, they're not drug and alcohol workers. And all those are the services that are being cut back, youth services, all of this stuff. So I would invest in those. Um, as a priority, I would give some more money to the police, but I think, um, as I say, I think they could save some money if they rationalise some of their back office functions. Yeah. So more more resources generally, but better better used is is their way out on that. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, Rick. Fascinating insight into the uh, difficulties of the modern police uh, in the UK and some possible ways forward. So, uh, Dr. Rick Muir, there. Thanks very much for being with thanks, us. That's all right. Do you know, there was a time not long ago when uh, you're not going to talk about your granddad. <laughs> not for a third time, no. But look, there was a the time not long ago where we used to have youth clubs, you know, and I think yes. the police used to be a bit involved in yes. those. And then as the well. police had to close them down, many of them, because of what was going on inside the, the youth, youth clubs. clubs. But that's nothing different well, story. Yeah, but I mean, that, you know, the, the issue about uh, where kids go at the end of the day, yeah, uh, is you know, we haven't got that, we haven't got that solved. No, well, they go to their computers these days and play well, they games, do, or they join a gang, one or, or the they other. join a gang, yeah, yeah depending it, on the region. But yeah, uh, these, these are all part of the problems. That, and it is what we were saying there is that society has changed. Police have to reflect that. Mm. And the problem is that a lot of society is almost unpoliceable, I would mm. think now, including uh, a lot of areas where, where mental health or social problems are very profound. Uh, we expect the police, as you said, to put a sticking plaster on them and they just don't have the resources to do it. But also inequality. And we didn't really talk about this, but the, the bigger the, uh, you know, the, the inequality you see, the In more society, police yeah. you, you, the, you are going to need more police, you mm. know, because rich people will be uh, will have more yeah. available to yes. be stolen. Yes, uh, and they'll live be in these gated communities, which um, will have to be. Yeah, and then get them to pay then for their own it policing. all becomes exactly. They, it starts to become privatised, yeah. and we also. I mean, even yeah. before that, you get to the stage where you go, "Oh, have your bike's been stolen? Was it insured? Well, it was insured, so the insurance companies are, yeah. are picking up the." Uh, the Sounds issue. like a dystopia to me, and we're well, we're in it. We are, we are, but um, <laughs> will we even get there? Because that's the question I suppose we're going to be thinking about next.
which is yeah. the imminent threat of, it seems extraordinary to say it, uh, after the end of the Cold War 35 years ago, nuclear war. Yeah, we won't be worried too much about the police, will we? Then we'll be going, <laughs> look, that Phil's idea of getting the military involved, uh, maybe that's more Well, there won't be much left of the military, because we're in a situation now where there is a realistic, and one has to say it, a realistic poss- possibility that a major European nation will use an armed nuclear missile uh, in order to God gain some kind of advantage in mm. Europe. I mean, it just seems extraordinary. And how does to say that, that play out? So we've, uh, and we'll talk about this next week. So we won't dwell on it now. We have to get off. But I mean, it, but the big question yeah. is: if Russia was even a small nuclear warhead anywhere, even if it was a long way from a, a population yeah. center, if they did it. How do we respond? That is unquestionably what's going through the minds of an awful lot of planners in Europe, in Britain, in the US right now. Mm. We're going to try and delve into that. So be with us next week on The Y Curve. The Y Curve.